Well, today, you can turn to Genesis chapter 6. We're back to Noah and the flood. And I'm just going to preach on two verses today. Um, I practice what's called expository preaching here at Beacon of Hope. And expository preaching, to exposit is to open up, to explain. And so these two verses, you'll see them in Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then if you drop down to verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Those are the two verses that we're going to be expounding today and explaining and opening up. So let's pray. Father, as we come to this incredible story of Noah and the flood, it's so much more than what we learned in Sunday school. Father, there's so many themes contained within the story that we need to explain and bring out, Lord. May they grip our heart and may they bring change into our lives, we pray. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, no matter the interpretation of the identity of the sons of God and the daughters of men, the result is clear. So whether you take the angelic view, which is wrong, (laughs) or the godly line versus the line of Cain, which is correct, ten long generations has passed, about fifteen to 1,600 years since Adam and Eve were driven from Eden. And fueled by that long lifespan that we read about, the population of the earth grew rapidly. Sin on the earth was increased to such a degree that the wickedness of people became unbearable to God. This escalation of evil was caused in part by the natural principles of sin working within the human heart, but these verses express that the sin was also accelerated by intermarriage between the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, while there are varying interpretations to that exact identity of these sons and daughters, it's important and probably more important that we look at the outcome of that unholy union. That is, the entire race had abandoned itself to evil. Also present on the earth at this time were the Nephilim, Hebrew for giants. But as I pointed out um, the last time I was with you, They were already present before this union is talked about. And they were present way after this union. Think of the sons of Anak, the Anakim. (laughs) These are best understood to be men of great stature or renown. God didn't judge the rampant evil immediately, but he said, My spirit will not strive with man forever, yet his days will be 120 years. Genesis 6.3 And as the Holy Spirit of God used Enoch to warn his generation of upcoming judgment, so he would now use Noah, who is later called a herald or a preacher, a proclaimer of righteousness, to urge the people of that day to repent. Repentance is a term. 
It's a key term in the scripture. It's a biblical term that means a change of mind resulting in changed behavior. It's not just a change in mind. It's not just an emotional response. It affects a change in behavior. At one time, I was walking in this direction, without God and without hope in the world, and I heard the gospel, and I turned and repented, and I began to walk in a different way. So that now, I am not the same person that I was before that repentance. Not even close. And I thank God for that. But this generation needed a wholesale turning to God from their godlessness. And God would give the people of Noah's day 120 years of mercy with Noah preaching righteousness. But there came a time, however, when the mercy of God would end. And there is coming a time now when God will be done. He'll take the church, the body of Jesus Christ, off the earth through the rapture, and then we'll begin seven years of tribulation, such as the world has never seen before. The day of judgment was marked with the words, I will blot out man. According to Genesis 6, 5, the wickedness of humanity was exposed before God because it says the Lord saw, Yahweh saw with his eyes. And it was human in origin. It says the wickedness of man. That's one of my tenets for believing that it was the lines of Seth and, and, uh, and Cain because it was human in origin. And it was universal in scope. It was great on the earth, we read in Genesis 6-5. It was a dominative motive in their lives so that every intention was identified. And it was rooted in the mind or the heart, the thoughts of his heart. And it was endless because it was only evil continually. That verse is just absolutely staggering. Picture of mankind. And that song that we sing does a very good job talking about it. What a difference Genesis 6-5 is in comparison with what God saw in Genesis 1-31. Saw all that he had created it, and it was very good. Now, the staggering analysis of the human condition could, could only come from the perspective of a perfectly holy God. The Genesis passage continues... All flesh had corrupted their way in verse 12. All flesh had corrupted their way. In the eyes of the creator, mankind had become corrupt. That word corrupt means contaminated or spoiled. Um, I've had an inordinate amount of tomatoes lately. And as I've worked my way through those tomatoes, which I love, I just love eating raw tomatoes at this time of year, I get down to the bottom and I realize there's corruption that has taken place in some of those tomatoes, and I weep. (laughs) But that corruption is rottenness. That's what this means. It's an abomination. It's a stench in the eyes of God. And all flesh had become a stench in their way before God. In the eyes of the Creator, mankind had become corrupt. After several generations of moral decline and downward spiral, the evil in human society was irreversible. It had reached the point of no return. A couple years ago, I was wondering, is all the evil that I see being perpetrated around 
just a sign of my aging. I've come to, I'm still aging, but I've come to realize, no, things are really going off the rails. And it's worldwide. There is such ungodliness and lawlessness in every country. I believe the time is very, very short. And this is a good message for this time. It had reached the point of no return. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Why? Because they are corrupt. And they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And they've all turned aside, and together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's from Psalm 14, verses 1 and 3. Now, in expounding Genesis 6-5, I want to give to you today a biblical anthropology, the study of man. This is the way man is seen from God's perspective. And as you'll see, it's all through the scripture. You see, it's very typical for people to think of themselves as pretty good, right? Some reason that they work hard, they pay their taxes, they go to church, they try to be good. I know a man that used to always say, I've never stolen anything too big to fit in my pocket. And that was his claim, you know, to goodness. He did steal, but it wasn't anything bigger than he could fit in his pocket. Most have a fairly benign view of themselves. Charles Krautheimer wrote an article for Time magazine in 1990. And he talked about a standardized math test that was taken by 13-year-olds in six countries. The Koreans obviously scored best. The Americans, dead last. Right behind Spain, Britain, Ireland, and Canada. They also had to respond to a, a statement in the testing, I am good at mathematics. The Koreans came in last on that. First in their testing, but last in their perception of themselves, coming in with only 23% that said yes. And you guessed it, the Americans, number one, I'm good at math, even though they were last. They were feeling good about doing bad. What that is, is a condition that is called self-deception. And it's rampant today. It's everywhere present. It doesn't matter what we feel about ourselves. What really matters is what is actually true about ourselves, and we only need God's perspective on that. Because in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it it says, God sees not as man sees. Our perception has been affected by the fall. Our perception of many things, that's why we need the truth of God's word to clarify what is really true, because our thinking has been affected by the fall. God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So we're going to look at a biblical anthropology. We're going to look at man's polluted roots 
and his profane reputation and his perpetual resistance. It's an outline that I first heard when I was in seminary given by Dr. George Zemeck. My first introduction to Dr. George Zemeck was seeing him in a class at the Master's Seminary, and he had a Greek Bible in one hand and an English Bible in the other hand, excuse me, a Hebrew Bible, and he was reading from the Hebrew and dropping it into English. We called it Zemeckian. He, he was a phenomenal man, and he, he per- perpetuated this this uh, outline, and it, it's just so helpful for us to see God's perspective of mankind. First, humanity's polluted roots. Well, Genesis 3, obviously, is the root of all roots, the fall. It explains and expands from Genesis all the way to Revelation, our polluted roots. Romans chapter 1 shows us that general revelation, the the, the natural revelation of, of nature, it's insufficient to convert people, but it is sufficient enough to condemn people because they can take that truth that they can see from nature and they suppress it in unrighteousness. Suppress means they hold it down in unrighteousness, even though they know there's got to be a creator. You see, Romans 2 talks about conscience in 2.15. People have an inner knowledge of God. And nature affirms that inner knowledge. But people's response is to hold it down in their unrighteousness. In the end, all humanity is found to be without excuse. If you read Romans 1 and 2 and 3, at the end of the story, all humanity, just like Genesis 6.5, Even though conscience is part of the Imago Dei, even that has been devastated by the fall, but not completely wiped out or eradicated. In Genesis 9, 6, we read, a man's blood will be required of the one who murders a man because he is in the image of God and been created by God. And we curse men with our tongue, James says, but they have been made in the image of God. So that image is still there. That imprint of God is still there in sinful men. But it's been terribly, terribly marred by the fall. Now the results of the fall, we can see in Genesis, or excuse me, Ephesus 2, 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, Paul teaches. Even as the rest, all. These, these are all-inclusive terms. Mankind is separated from their creator. Paul gives a universal application to the result of the flaw. Uh, the fall, and it's passed on all people. All people are born in a state of being spiritually dead. All people are born in a state of being spiritually dead, separate from their creator. And this, they are by virtue of the essence of their nature as human beings. That's our nature. It's who we are. According to God. Not according to us. Because according to us, we're pretty good. Right? 
Now that just talks a little bit about our polluted roots. How about our profane reputation? Sadly, there's no room for optimism regarding the humanity's uh, spiritual condition. A quick look through the Bible will show us as much. In the book of Job, Job believed and taught this truth. In Job 4.14, he says, Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. And then over in Job 14.4, he says it. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? And he answers it. No one. We are unclean. We are born in this world as unclean, separate from God. Solomon believed and taught this truth. In 1 Kings 8.46, he says, For there is no man who does not sin. Ecclesiastes 7.20, Not a righteous man on earth is there who does not sin. And Ecclesiastes 9.3, The hearts of the Son of Men are full of evil and insanity. And insanity. It's in their hearts throughout their lives. We look at the evil perpetuated in the school massacres and you know, we call it mental health issues. Sin. There's sin issues, people. God calls it straight. Insanity is in their hearts all of their lives. Jeremiah believed and taught this truth. Jeremiah 17, 9, we know this. The heart of the unregenerate person, the heart of the one who is not born again, the heart of one who has not received Jesus Christ's forgiveness of their sins, is deceitful and desperately wicked, Who can understand it? And Jesus obviously taught this truth. In Matthew 7, he says, For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts and fornications and thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit and sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within. From the heart of men and women and little boys and little girls, and they defile them. This is a bleak picture, yes? But this is God's picture of mankind. Note that the head of the list is evil thoughts. That's because the mind of man has been deeply affected by the fall, by sin, so that there's no way to reason with him about spiritual truth. You can't prove spiritual truth to him or persuade him with spiritual truth without the life-giving intervention of the Holy Spirit. That's why I am a presuppositional apologetic. Okay, you, you can't reason somebody with evidences. I'm not an evidentialist. I don't believe you can take the truths of God's word and convince somebody that God is real. It takes a supernatural rebirth for the purpose in mind that's been affected by the fall to begin to comprehend things. I don't know if you've ever witnessed to somebody and talked to them about the things of God and you just get these shark eyes, right? They're just dead. And they're nodding and they're talking and they're listening and everything. You know it's not going in there. That's because they need the work of the Spirit of God in their lives. The gospel brings that work to them. 
It's just amazing when you think of our state. But that shows us the profane reputation. So we've got just terrible roots polluted from the beginning, a profane reputation throughout the scriptures, and now humanity's perpetual resistance. Here's an amazing fact that in in non-moral context, man's reason and logic may function flawlessly. You've heard me talk about Stephen Hawking. How brilliant can one person be? I'm reading a book right now that talks about um, savants and, and, and their it was through a traumatic experience, like a, a head hit real hard, that knocked them into a savant stage. A savant is someone that, that has incredible abilities in like one area. So like they're really brilliant, say in astrophysics, but they can't tie their shoes and they forget to eat food. Savants, okay? We can be like a savant in certain areas. God has created certain people with incredible brilliance. But those are in the areas of non-moral contexts. In spiritual and ethical matters, their thinking process is irrational and illogical. An example might be in the area of math. The natural man, meaning the one that has not become regenerate yet, can deduce that two plus two is four. But in spiritual matters or theological matters, Due to his unceasing commitment to self and sin, his incomplete independence from God, or his complete independence from God, whenever he tries to reason in spiritual or ethical situations, the simplest calculations will come out wrong. Two plus two will equal seven or nine. He can't get it. He has no capacity. He is spiritually dead. The Old Testament testimony, Genesis 6-5. Unless anyone thinks that the great flood took care of that problem, it did not. Jumping ahead a little bit here. It washed away sinful man from the face of the earth. It blotted him out. But it could not wash away the wickedness of the heart of man. Genesis 8-21, after the flood, where God says, For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Sin is really something, people. And we need to get a hold of how insidious it is. New Testament testimony, Ephesians 4, 17 through 19 says this. So this I say, Paul said, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Gentiles is a general term for anybody who is not a Jew or basically sinners, in Paul's vernacular. So, this I affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as unbelievers also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. The fallen human mind is empty. It's futile. It is without purpose, fruitless. And it is excluded from the life of God. Without God and without hope in the world. 
That's unbelievers. That's where they're at. Now, I heard R.C. Sproul once say that a man can have his Ph.D. in astrophysics, but if he's not regenerated in the area of spiritual truth, he's not even in kindergarten yet. There's a difference. There's a difference. A kindergartner just liked that one. Good. The summary, unregenerate man. I don't even want you to turn there, but you can mark this down. Romans 3, 10 through 18. There's none that are righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together, and they have become useless, and there is none who does good. There is not even one. In verses 13 through 14, we see their communication, their throat. Their throat's like an open grave with their tongues. They keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. In verses 15 through 17, we see their conduct. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace, they have not even known. And in verse 18, it shows fallen humanity's contempt. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, you look around today and what is being publicized, what is being foisted upon our children in public school systems, everywhere, drag queens, homosexuality, bisexuality, everything. There is no fear of God. You think they do that publicly without any shame whatsoever if they had any fear or recognition of God? That is the suppressing of truth and unrighteousness. And that's the composite picture of mankind. In Isaiah 5, verse 6, it says, The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint, and from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises and welts and raw wounds. (laughs) What's original sin? You know, many of us have religious backgrounds in various churches and denominations and everything. We've probably heard about original sin. But what I've just described to you has been referred by theologians as original sin. Moody Handbook of Theology defines original sin very simply like this. The sinful state and condition in which people are born. (laughs) I love Moody Handbook of Theology. If you don't have that, you should have it. It's a great little... That's the way it, it takes these heavy terms and explains them. Original sin, it says, is the sinful state and condition in which people are born. It is so designated because, one, it is derived from the original root of the human race, Adam. Number two, it is present in life of every individual from the time of their birth. And number three, it is the inward root of all actual sin that defile the life of people. Simply stated, this refers to the corruption of of our whole nature. Now, it talked about that in that song that we sang, All Mankind Fell in Adam's Fall. It talked about we have no strength. There's nothing within us. I mean, it gives a beautiful depiction of what I'm talking about today. 
Another theological term for this is total depravity. Now, just before you slaughter me, because that's a term that is used in Calvinism, please, don't go there. Just listen to what I'm saying to you, okay, and what the Word of God says to you. Think of the corruption of sin like a virus in a computer, okay? Man's a computer. We're the computer. And sin is a virus. And so all of our faculties, our mind, our emotion, our will, are part of our operating system. But there's a virus in the operating system, and so therefore it affects every faculty we have as human beings. Every faculty. Our thinking is stained with sin. It's corrupt. Our emotions are affected by sin. Our wills. This is where the term total depravity originates. Every faculty of our entire person is affected by sin. But total depravity, and this you may not understand about what we're discussing here, how sin affects us from our birth onward, total depravity doesn't mean that everyone is thoroughly depraved in their actions as they could possibly be. Okay? Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean that we're all like serial serial killers. We're not all acting out the evil that resides within us to the degree that we could. Nor that everyone will indulge in every form of sin, nor that a person cannot appreciate and even do acts of goodness, but it does mean that the corruption of sin extends to all people, to all parts of the person, so that there is nothing within a natural man, unregenerate person, not a believer, that can give him merit in God's sight. That's the problem. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. So even those good things we do, if it's not coming from a regenerate, renewed heart who's believed in Jesus Christ, it's tainted with sin and unacceptable to God. Therefore, we can speak of original sin. We are speaking of the total depravity or corruption of every person born, which corruption affects the person in every faculty, in their intellect, in in. In Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says that the devil has blinded the minds of people. Our intellect, we're blind to spiritual truths. The conscience in 1 Timothy 4, 2 is called seared. Our consciences are seared. In Romans 1, 28, the will, we will not acknowledge God. We hold that truth down in our unrighteousness. People don't want to admit that there's a God because then they're responsible to him. They have accountability before him. That's the pushback that you get when you're talking to people about spiritual things. The totality of the human being you can find in Romans 1, 18 through 3.20. Mark that down and go home and read about this. This is the totality of the human being without God and without hope in the world. Now, I'm utterly convinced we don't view sin as God views sin, or I want to preach what I just got done preaching. We slough it off as error, to err as human, or, or we say, I messed up. I've heard that said about adultery. Honey, I messed up. 
And honey doesn't really buy it, right? Honey says, no, you committed adultery. You were unfaithful to me. God says, that is a sin worth death. We have hundreds of ways to excuse sin. But sin is a terrible corruption unleashed in the garden, enslaving humanity by its power ever since, leaving mankind helpless and lost beyond God's intended purpose in creating mankind. We were created to glorify God, reflect him, and enjoy him forevermore. We can't do that because of sin. Beyond God's intended purpose, we can't do it. It's by God's assessment we're hopeless situation, people. And Genesis 6-5 tells us not only is sin internal as well as external, nor is it just pervasive in that it affects everything we can possibly think or do, it is also continuous. For in God's judgment, we all do only evil all the time. And from our perspective, a statement like that is almost beyond our belief. You're thinking, I've not heard this before. And I say, thank God you're hearing it now. Because this is the true picture of mankind without God. You see, that's, that's why you can't just raise your hand and everything's hunky-dory. You, know, you can't just say, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. I go to church. I give at church. I even go to Bible study once in a while. I'm okay. Are you? From our perspective, a statement like that is almost beyond belief. We would not make it of a, other people and even, even the worst people we know, we'd not give that kind of a picture of them unless we know the Lord. We'd certainly not make it of ourselves, but this is the truth of God speaking to us. God who sees all things and who sees the heart, and God is truthful. Now, I know some may be thinking that the Bible is painting the bleakest possible picture ever of the state of mankind before the flood. But let me remind you that it was after the flood too, and then you've got the New Testament with Paul and Romans painting the same picture. Look at verse 8. <laughs> but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There it is. That's a great contrast. That's our hope. That's the way out, people. Grace. Grace. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. He won't perish. Grace is first, okay? This verse begins with a little contrast, but. And we see in verse 8 is in the contrast to everything that we've just seen, everything I've just preached. This is the contrast to it. In the face of the bleakest picture of the depravity of man and his rebellious nature, with thunderclouds foreshadowing his righteous wrath against such sin, a small crack appears and a slender shimmer of hope shines through with the promise of a new day. Noah saw it. Think of it for just one moment. Noah grew up in the midst of the filth and mire of such sin as made God sorry that he had ever made man. So grievous a sin that God would blot out man from the face of the earth. But Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. Now there's something very important here that I don't want you to, to miss. And you're going to think it's stupid, but I'm going to tell you anyways. 
Genesis 6.8 comes before Genesis 6.9. <laughs> okay? Genesis 6.8 comes before 6.9. Many try to reverse these verses, saying that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God, and because Noah did so, he found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. For that's what that word favor means, grace. It's the first mention of it in the Bible. But that would destroy the very essence of grace, for grace is unmerited favor. You cannot get from that composite picture of sinful man that I just described to you from all of Scripture to someone who somehow does the right things and therefore merits favor with God. It doesn't work. I remember being explained to me one time that, you know, we think of man as as sick with sin. (laughs) Nope, he's dead. I've heard the illustration... You know, giving the gospel to people is like throwing a lifesaver to them as they're struggling in the water. No, he's dead. He's on the ocean floor, rotting. That's where he is. Nothing short of a supernatural miracle will raise that person to respond. Nothing. Grace is first. While we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for us. While we were yet without strength, dead in trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. Here's the demonstration of God's love toward us. While we were still sinning, while we were still sinning and enjoying the sin, Christ died for us. That's Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8. All we can do is say, thank you. I love this because that's what Taliabo did. When they believed, they just said, Terimakasi. Receive thanks. Terimakasi. Nobody taught them that. What else can you do but say thank you? And then live the rest of your life serving him. What else? Now righteousness is the proof of God's grace. Noah's righteousness was the product of his having found favor And it is therefore the proof of that favor, not its ground. He didn't do this stuff, and so God said, Oh, it's pretty good. I think I'll take him on. I'll save him. Not even close to it. The good works performed by the believer don't gain them favor with God as as though earning some merit with him. No, a thousand times. No, our, our good works are the proof of our having been given the grace of God. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. And if you want to do a study, study what those filthy rags were. I'm not going to talk about it right now. God does not love us because of what we have done or because of who we are. We're sinners all. We're completely and totally undeserving of God's grace. And that is what makes his grace, grace. He loved Noah. Why? Because he loved him. End of story. Explain it. I can't. Why did he save me? I can't explain that. And I've told you a thousand times, I was running as fast as I could the other direction and enjoying it. He loves us because he loves us. He said as much of Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy 7, 
7 and 8, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you because you were more in number than any other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you because he loved you. (laughs) The grace of God changes everything. We read in 1 John 4.19, we love because what? He loved us first. First. People, we're dead, rotten at the bottom of the sea. And he reaches down and gives us life. The grace of God changes everything. The grace of God came into Noah's life and it changed him forever. Why? Because God, according to his good pleasure and great mercy, chose to love Noah. And the grace of God enabled Noah to act righteously, to live blamelessly, and to walk with God. That's the further description of Noah. A preacher of righteousness in the midst of filth, a cesspool of a culture. Grace leads to righteousness. Noah was a righteous man. He was in conformity to God's standard. He was righteous in that he obeyed God. He complied with God's ways, evidenced in the phrase, he walked with God. He walked with God. And I'm sure he didn't walk perfectly. Who does? But he walked with God. That was the trajectory of his life. And the love of God leads us to obey him. Grace leads us to righteousness, to to walk with God. And the love of God leads us to obey him. Jesus clarified this to his disciples saying, if you love me, you will obey what I command you. And in John, 1 John 2, 3, we read, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. You know why? Because if you don't obey his commands... You don't know him. You're proving that you don't know who he is. I mean, if you really understand the composite picture that I presented to you of man and our total depravity, original sin, our complete helplessness and inability to do anything, and you, by the grace of God, have come to understand the gospel, that you need the forgiveness of all your sins, are you not going to want to obey him? Of course you will. This is exactly the teaching about grace from the New Testament. Titus 2, 11 and 12, mark it down. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Just as it instructed Noah. The grace of God... Such truth is so far beyond our means to logic and understand. We love to work for rewards, people. Even as believers, we think the way that we live is going to be pleasing to God and he's going to bless us. Yeah, we're just like Pharisees, right? Remember the blind man? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Neither. (laughs) They didn't understand. Their whole mindset was, if I keep the law... God will bless me. Jesus came and said, hey, no way you can keep the law. Didn't you understand what the law is for? It's a tutor to teach you that you're sinful. How can God freely give us his grace that we can live? I'll end with this. 
Do this and live the law commands. Do this and live the law commands. But gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings. It bids me fly and it gives me wings. That's the gospel. That's grace. He loved you because he loved you. Not because of anything that you did. And he loved Noah because he loved him. And obviously he had a plan for Noah and his sons to perpetuate the human race. And we'll continue with that when we come back next week. Let's pray. Father, we love you because you loved us. And Lord, the more that we understand original sin and how all pervasive it is in our life, the more we will appreciate the unmerited favor and the enablement we have by grace to live for you. And what a privilege it is to do what we were created to do, which is to glorify you, to reflect back who you are to a world around us and to enjoy you forevermore. Oh God, let these things rip our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.